I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Charles of Orleans, Part 2. Welcome back, a quick review of where we were before we start this episode. We left at the autumn of 1409. Charles is a teen single father of five who has just signed a treaty with the Count of Armagnac. This is part of his long-term goal of gaining justice for his father, Louis of Orléans, who had been murdered under the planning of John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy. And never forget, throughout this period, Charles VI, the King of France is having regular mental episodes, which leave him incapable of ruling. In fact, he was just coming out of one of these following John the Fearless's overseeing of the execution of one of his favorites. Yes, Charles VI had recovered from his most recent breakdown to find his favorite had been executed, and he was none too pleased. He invited the Princes of the Blood and the other nobility to Paris for Christmas time. He included John the Fearless in the invitation. And if this doesn't point to Charles VI's lack of mental well-being in general, I don't know what does. Bourbon, of course, declined. He would really never look upon John's face again. In addition, Charles, our subject, Brittany and Armagnac declined. I can't find out if Anjou declined, but I can't imagine him choosing to spend time around John. For John the Fearless, this was great. He got the king all to himself, and he took full advantage of it. He was able to convince the king that Montague, the king's favorite who had just been executed, was really a bad guy. Oh, and that he, John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, would be the best person to take custody of Louis, the Dauphin. I mean, the Dauphin's wife was his daughter, so he would, of course, do everything to protect them and educate the future king well on how to follow Burgundian rules. Those who had excused themselves from the Christmas festivities quickly found out what had happened. They decided they needed to start getting active on this John problem. On the 15th of April, 1410, Charles, Barry, Brittany, Clermont, who is Bourbon's son, Alençon, and Armagnac signed an alliance against Burgundy. You may notice that Bourbon was not on this list. He was pretty much retired from public life at this point, and his son, Clermont, was the public face of their cause. Their goal was to convince the king to bring justice to John the Fearless. They weren't originally out to make war with John. In addition to this treaty, Charles agreed to marry Bonne, Armagnac's daughter. She was only 11 at the time, so it would be a while before things would be made official. 
but the couple was legally married on the 15th of August that year. And there was a further family link. Armagnac was Barry's son-in-law. Yes, this means that Bon and Charles were both descendants of John II and his first wife. Yes, everyone is related. While getting his own marriage arranged, he arranged a marriage for his eight-month-old daughter. This was, of course, not going to happen anytime soon, but it was planned that Joan would marry John, the son of Alençon. Yes, if you listen to the Joan of Arc special episodes, this is that John of Alençon. I do like that these men were making sure that everyone would be related in the next generation as well. Days after Charles' second wedding, his always supportive great-uncle Bourbon died. Thankfully for Charles's cause, Clermont continued to support him. Clermont, who I'll start calling Bourbon after this paragraph, had been a supporter of John the Fearless earlier in his life due to being betrothed to one of John's daughters. This support obviously hadn't lasted long, and Clermont would be loyal to the Orleanist cause for the rest of his life. Bourbon had been the great chamberlain of France, and his son should have been appointed to that role next. It was semi-hereditary. Instead, John the Fearless had his own brother appointed to the role. This was a further insult to Clermont, now Bourbon, and the other Orleanist supporters, and showed that John was still pulling strings. On the 2nd of September, Charles and his allies sent a letter to the king. They outlined that their goal was for the king to be restored to his dignity, not to be led around by John the Fearless. They wanted good government and justice. The group sent a second document to the cities of France that outlined their cause. They sent a final letter to the Estates General outlining the problems John the Fearless was causing, including how him being in power had led to the king living in poverty without any control. With these letters sent, the men called their armies together and began to march towards the capital, with about 20,000 men. I love the note in MacLeod's book that the group didn't appreciate the Armagnac label, and throughout the book she calls them the Orleanist. Charles VI, as expected, ordered the men to disband. You can't have private armies running around your kingdom. They reached Paris in October. As they were marching, John the Fearless became a little fearful. Slowly realizing that his enemies were not going to let him walk all over them, he called his brothers to his side along with their supporters. The people of Paris, rightly terrified, raised their own funds to pay for an army to protect themselves. Burgundy, realizing he could lose, decided terms were the way to go. He renounced his royal pension. Azart would resign as provost and be replaced by the king's choice, and John would return territory that he had appropriated from the Orleanist, and Barry would be his equal on the council. Now, Barry had been feeling a bit overlooked as the last remaining uncle and brother of Charles V. The agreement was signed on the 2nd of November, 1410. The two sides, along with the king, agreed to keep the peace until Easter of 1412. And with that, the armies disbanded. Charles and his brothers didn't sit idly by, though. Instead, they focused on improving the defenses of his various castles. He began to sell off his movable goods to raise funds for a future army. It appears that he knew John wouldn't keep to his side of the bargain, and Charles decided he wanted justice. In the spring of 1411, Charles sent an ambassador to his uncle, slash former father-in-law, slash godfather, you know, the king for justice. 
he pointed out that all those around the king were Burgundians, meaning John hadn't followed through on his treaty obligations from six months earlier. Charles VI, following his own special system, asked John the Fearless to make things better. You can probably feel my eye roll through the recording. John let the king know it wasn't his fault and he was following all his oaths. Really, king nephew, it was Charles who needed to forgive and forget. I, I, John the Fearless, am already doing that. After this first embassy failed, Charles followed up with a letter written in his own hand, and he asked the king for an audience. He told his uncle he wanted to discuss these problems and that John the Fearless was the biggest problem. The king, obviously not in the right headspace, sent a copy of the letter to John. My note for this passage is a simple, did the king want his nephew dead? With this information, John the Fearless began assembling his forces. Realizing his uncle wasn't going to give him justice, Charles sent another letter. This one outlined all his arguments and explained why he was gathering forces. He also reminded the king of the promise he had made to Valentina following the death of Louis of Orléans. This letter didn't just go to the king, it went to all the major towns and members of the council. It was physically huge, three feet square, and his brothers were involved in drafting. It's a good moment to point out this type of letter is important. Charles needed justification to act against his cousin. It's important to never be seen as the aggressor, one acting without cause, this is a military strategy dating back over a thousand years. Anyone who's listened to the history of Rome has heard of this. John the Fearless, as a member of council, received a copy. His only response was that he stood by the earlier agreement. I can't emphasize enough that Charles VI's behavior during this time shows how unwell he was. He wasn't doing anything to protect his nephews, and he even sent a letter back that his nephew needed to follow through on his earlier pledge, that one that he was forced to make. The king made his displeasure at his nephew clear. This letter to Charles was sent on the 20th. He may not have received it before he sent a letter directly to John. This letter was explicit. Charles and his supporters were coming for John. John was properly fearless and poked the bear. He waited a month to respond and had the letter written by a minor underling. This letter said that he had been forced to have Louis killed due to Louis's foul treason. He accused Charles and his brothers of following in their father's treacherous footsteps. Charles was apparently kind to this messenger who brought him this horrible letter, and this is actually something we'll see throughout his life. With this, though, Charles knew what he had to do. He had to really make it clear to the king that he needed justice. So Charles and his forces marched towards Paris. Entertainingly, John the Fearless still didn't think Charles was serious. Honestly, what does it take to make him realize his plan won't work? An invite to a meeting on a bridge? Just to show how little he cared, he had his art reappointed as provost of Paris in September of 1411. When he did realize things were serious, he asked Henry IV, yes, the King of England, for help. That same month, Charles VI had a severe mental health attack. John the Fearless was not in Paris at this point, and within the city of Paris, the Orleanists were not popular. They were accused of trying to usurp the throne. 
Once the Orleanists reached Saint-Denis, a suburb just north of Paris, their supporters took some of the queen's jewels to melt down to pay for troops. The monks immediately filed papers with the Office of Excommunication. While the act of stripping the crown of some of its jewels was shocking, the Orleanists stopped at that. They stayed outside of Paris and didn't force their way in. In addition, they didn't move to attack any of John the Fearless's holdings. They were really trying to emphasize that they were aiming for royal justice, not personal vengeance. At least for the moment. John the Fearless arrived in late October, and his forces defeated the Orleanist forces at Saint-Cloud, to the west of Paris. With this defeat, Charles and his forces retreated back to Orléans. He and his entire army were excommunicated on the 13th of November, 1411. This means that anyone who died at Saint-Cloud couldn't be buried in consecrated ground. The king, still unwell and being led around by John, released an edict expropriating five of his nephew's properties and one of Bourbon's properties. For fun, in the latter's case, he actually expropriated Clermont. Remember, Clermont was now Bourbon. These cities and others turned against Charles and his supporters quickly, and the loss of these cities hemmed Charles and his supporters into the Loire. This also meant he could only raise funds in those areas. This was rather limiting to his long-term goal of achieving some rehabilitation for his father and justice for his family. There was someone Charles could reach out to for help, but it would cost him. Remember, we're still at the point where nationalism isn't all that it will be or currently is. Charles was French, and he owed allegiance to his vassal lord, the King of France. But he didn't owe allegiance because he was French. So the person he reached out to was his distant cousin, Henry IV. Henry's usurpation had given Charles his first wife, right? How bad could it be to ask the king for help? He wasn't asking for aid from a foreign power against his liege lord, but against his peer. Henry IV's wants were easy. He wanted Aquitaine, and Charles would need to support him at court in gaining this. Charles would hold Angoulême and Perigord as a vassal to Henry. This would make him the vassal of both Henry IV and Charles VI. While these negotiations were happening, Charles VI had one of his many recoveries. These actually seem to all occur in winter, which is interesting from a medical point of view, but not relevant to our story. The treaty was agreed in theory on the 25th of January, 1412. Henry would be sending his second son, Thomas of Lancaster, soon to be Duke of Clarence, which is what I'll call him, to continue negotiations. The final treaty was signed by Charles, Barry, Bourbon, and Alençon on the 18th of May, 1412. English troops were to set sail on the 8th of June. Somehow, letters of these negotiations reached Charles VI, and they were read to council on the 16th of April, a month before the final treaty was signed. John the Fearless used these to convince Charles VI that he should start a military campaign against Charles of Orléans. The leaders of council and Paris, along with the university, agreed. Obviously, those that signed the treaty weren't there. John the Fearless and Charles's plan was to head south, attacking the lands of Berry, Armagnac, and Albrey, while moving towards Gascony. On the 4th of May, the Oriflame was brought to the king from Saint-Denis. You may remember this flag had been famously brought out in the last French charge at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356, and it meant there would be no prisoners taken. 
Charles VI, in a well-thought-out move, would not be leading the troops. He would allow his son, Louis the Dauphin, to do so. Louis had just turned 14. John the Fearless would, of course, accompany the young prince, his son-in-law. Henry IV, worried for his various holdings in France, actually sent letters to Burgundian town leaders asking if his lands would be attacked. Barry's lands were first. The target was Bourges, the capital of Barry's holdings. This city was and still is beautiful. I really hope to visit it one day. And Barry was a lover of art and architecture and had spent his life collecting beautiful things. He had never been a fighter. He had no surviving sons and had recently willed the city to his great nephew, Louis the Dauphin. Barry was willing to yield the city to either the king or Louis, but not John. John the Fearless was ready to bombard the city to the ground, but he wasn't allowed to use his heavy artillery because of Louis. Both sides had started battle, but once the Dauphin had properly seen the city, which would one day be his, he couldn't stand to see it destroyed. He declared that this disagreement had gone on for far too long and that it wasn't healthy for the king or the kingdom. He was probably right. As you'll remember from my episodes about him, Louis wasn't seen as a level-headed young man. He was often easily led, a bit of a party prince. But in this moment, I think we should be a little impressed. I know I've mentioned it before, but it's good to say again, John the Fearless was his father-in-law and a man who often had control of him physically and emotionally. John had no choice but to agree. Louis was Charles VI's representative, and to go against him was treason. On the 15th of July, the two sides met at the city gate. Barry, crying, gave the keys to the city to his great-nephew. Barry, showing that while he might not have been a fighter, he wasn't scared of John, commented that had John's father been alive, there wouldn't have been need for protection for the negotiating sides. John, showing a complete lack of any thoughtfulness, simply said he wasn't to blame. Honestly, this will continue to be his line until the end. He feels justified in all that he does. For Charles, though, this temporary peace was actually a letdown. His allies had crumpled at an early attack, and he was now to be forced to make peace. Again, with John. Peace talks were set for mid-August 1412 in Auxerre. Less than a week after his surrender, Barry was sent documents from the king telling him to renounce the treaty with England and Henry IV. And he did. Barry met with Charles and his brothers just days later and gave them the bad news. Charles's other allies followed through on this peace. While all this was going on, the English were still on their way. On the 22nd of August, Charles signed a document renouncing his English treaty, and the English weren't there yet, so they had no input. He and his supporters also renounced their pact against John the Fearless and Burgundy in general. Charles and his supporters did gain one important thing out of this peace. Their excommunications were lifted. They received the return of some of their estates as a minor concession as well. Now, remember how I said that Henry VI would take Charles VI's playbook to heart? During the meeting to sign the treaty at Auxerre, Charles was forced to ride a horse with John the Fearless. Yes, it's not holding hands on Love Day, but it's bad enough. With the treaty signed, many in France thought things would go on peacefully. 
Montague, killed due to John's machinations, was finally buried and his execution was condemned by council. Clarence finally showed up in France, well after he was needed. He was none too pleased to not get to fight. Letters had been sent to him, letting him know that he shouldn't come, but he wrote back that, basically, he was coming. Since they had a treaty, Charles and his supporters would need to pay to break it. It's not as though they could support the English taking Gascony now. The negotiations lasted six weeks, and the cost of peace was financially and personally painful. And after this message, you'll hear more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The total amount was 210,000 écus, so about one-fifth the ransom negotiated for John II after Poitiers. This is an honestly mean sum of money and was seen as excessive at the time. Jewels and seven hostages were to be given in surety. Barry, as the wealthiest, did provide the majority of the jewels needed. Charles, though, had to provide the hostages. Choosing a hostage is important. The person needs to actually matter, so a random minor servant would never do. No, Charles would have known quite early in negotiations who he needed to give. His youngest brother, John, along with six of his senior servants, would be sent to England with Clarence until Charles had paid the required sum. John was only 12. I'm sure Charles never thought his little brother would be in prison for long. He was likely hoping to have the boy released before he reached 21. Sadly, John will spend almost as much of his 67-year life in England as he does in France. Charles was also going to have to pay for the upkeep of these hostages while they were in English control, and this also wasn't cheap. While his father was accused rightly, of taking royal income to fund his lavish lifestyle, Charles was a much less flashy man than Louis had been. His love really was books and his country of the Loire. It wasn't wearing fancy clothes or collecting art or going to tournaments, so unlike his father, he hadn't been pillaging the royal treasury. Thankfully, his uncle, Charles VI, did still have some affection for his nephew. He allowed Charles to raise taxes within his duchy. Sadly for Charles and John, it turns out that a few of these towns were empty because everyone had been killed by the English. Even though the peace at Auxerre had, in theory, given Charles most of his towns back, he still struggled to take control of these due to court politics, and John the Fearless was still controlling the king. 
Charles would sadly have to sit out this next bit. His cousin, Louis, the Dauphin, now stepping into his own, called the Estates General in January of 1413. France was, well, a mess. There was obviously internal division, and there were occasional English raids on the French coast, which were not being dealt with. The timing of this meeting seems great. France should have had a chance to get themselves together, but they had no idea what was coming. If you know anything about this time period or Henry V, you know that this year will see the end of Henry IV's reign and the rise of Henry V. The French actually weren't all that worried about either Henry. If you've listened to my Patreon episode, you'll know that in his youth, Henry V was a, supposedly a bit of a party prince. Or at least he was less serious than he was once he became king. The French had no reason to expect Henry V to change once he succeeded to that role. They were in for a painful surprise. Throughout the start of 1413, the Estates General discussed the problems in France. They blamed this on the offices being held by young men. Hashtag the youth of today. While these discussions were taking place, things in Paris got worse. Remember back when the Orleanist faction had first marched on Paris in 1410? During that time, the city had paid the butchers to protect the inhabitants. This had given said butchers a bit more power than they had previously held. They had stepped down once the event was over, but now they stepped up again. Led by Caboche, the butchers and a few city leaders took control of the protection of the city. And yes, there were quotes around protection. It was likely more like the bully being put in charge of the playground. And John the Fearless did everything he could to let them know that the Orleanists were the cause of the civil strife. They demanded the provost of Paris be turned over to them. And even after hiding in the Bastille, he couldn't escape them. They broke into the Dauphin's palace and arrested his uncle, Louis of Bavaria, and the Duke of Bar, who's a cousin of Louis in the female line. Of course, the Dauphin was enraged. He told John the Fearless off, and John just told him to calm down. Yeah, I'm not joking. For a subject, though, this abuse of power worked out in his favor. The Parisians were finally shown that John wasn't their hero, but just a villain in a different form. The Ordinance of Cobochin was issued on the 26th of May. This was an ordinance meant to return control to the capital. But people had realized that John wasn't going to help them. They asked Barry for help. I do, of course, need to leave France for a moment. On the 20th of March, 1413, Henry IV died in the Jerusalem chamber at Westminster Abbey. Because England doesn't have interregnums, Henry V became king on the 21st of March. Back to Paris and Charles. Throughout this period, Charles had been receiving intelligence from his surgeon and his brother Philip. Both had managed to sneak into the city of Paris and send him word of events. He had been preparing for the potential of battle. You may have noticed by now that each of the pieces made between Charles and his faction and the Burgundians feels more hollow than the last, and, well, that's an understatement. In a funny note, John the Fearless was upset when he eventually found out that Philip had been in Paris. Had he been able to find the young man, he likely would have forced him to follow through on their earlier marriage agreement. 
In July, Charles and Alençon, along with their other minor allies, met to discuss their next move. They sent an embassy to the king offering their help. Interestingly, at this moment, the Count of O, who was a brother-in-law of Philip of Nevers, John's younger brother, signed a pact with Charles. Troops sent from Charles and his expanding list of allies left for Paris on the 31st of July to assist the king in the Dauphin. With this assistance, Charles VI and the Dauphin were able to make peace with the butchers, and John the Fearless quickly figured out that he might become persona non grata rather quickly. The leaders of this movement fled with John to Flanders. The Parisians were happy with the change. The Dauphin was pleased to have his cousin's support, and it looked like Charles might finally have a chance at justice. His man, Châtel, was appointed provost. Despite this victory, Charles was a little unwell, so he returned to Blois temporarily. He would return to Paris later in August, and upon his return, the Dauphin began convincing his cousin to dress in a way expected by a prince of the blood. Louis of Orléans had always been a fancy dresser and a bit of a spendthrift. Charles, though, didn't have a need to be fancy. He needed his books. But with his cousin and former brother-in-law and theoretical future king's encouragement, Charles started dressing better. It would be a short-lived experience for him, but while he was at court, he needed to present himself as a prince, fancy clothes and matching retainers. This was despite the fact that he'd probably rather sneak into the library and read a book, send all the money he was spending on clothes to his brother John. On the 1st of September, Charles Anjou, Bourbon, who was Claremont, remember, Alençon, and other Orleanists had a state entry into Paris. They were greeted by Barry and Bavaria, and Armagnac and Albrey came a few days later. On the 5th, all the princes of the blood, except a certain Burgundian named John, attended a council meeting. They had all the remaining Cabochins imprisoned, except, of course, the leaders who had escaped to Flanders. The princes, as should surprise no one, promised to keep peace. After going through multiple conflicts and promises, I find these to be hollow. Charles would remain in Paris through April 1414, and he took part in a royal Christmas with his extended family. While Charles was in Paris, the doctors at the University of Paris began reviewing John the Fearless's defense. The man who gave it, Jean Petit, had died three years earlier and therefore wasn't around to stand up for his argument. John, possibly hearing about this, had been writing to the king. On the 8th of February, he began to march back to Paris. The Dauphin asked Charles and his Orleanist allies to assist in the defense of Paris. The city gates were closed and the Burgundian messengers were refused. The allies publicly declared John a murderer and a traitor. And while he was stuck outside of the city, his defense was voided. The doctors at the University of Paris even burnt a copy of it, yes, like an effigy. This was finally Charles's justice. His cause had been publicly acknowledged, his father's name had been cleared, and the work that his mother died trying to complete was done. Plus, he was fully back in the royal fold. His uncle, the king, was listening to him, and his cousin, the Dauphin, was showing favoritism towards him. Of course, no punishments were made against John. He wasn't physically present. At least, not yet. 
John the Fearless wasn't going to give up, though. Since he couldn't get into Paris, he and his troops moved to Compagnon. This city was a royal town under Charles, our Charles's control. On the 2nd of March, 1414, the king declared war on John and his Burgundian forces. Things seemed to start out well for the joint Royal Orleanist forces. John had moved to Arras, and while waiting for the royal forces, the Burgundian forces were able to prepare the area outside of the walls by cutting down the local forest. This meant that there was minimal cover for royal artillery. The royal forces reached Arras at the end of July 1414. Quick segue. In spring of 1414, Henry V had begun secretly negotiating with John the Fearless. They had signed an agreement in June that year while the fighting was going on in Arras. I'm sorry if it's clear I have a bias against John, but I just find him annoying and mean-spirited in a way I just can't condone. While everyone, save Barry, who was very old, was in Arras, Henry sent ambassadors to Paris to negotiate with the French for Catherine of Valois, Charles VI's youngest daughter. Or at least that's what everyone thought he was negotiating for. In theory, he did want Catherine, but he also wanted a bit more, like the concessions outlined in the Treaty of Brittany, which his ambassadors had a copy of. The French, who were around, literally weren't able to negotiate. There was no way without the Dauphin or the king to do this, and they were a bit busy. Henry was, of course, angered by this. It's enlightening to look at Henry's casus belli from a French perspective. The French and Burgundian forces launched cannonballs against each other throughout August, but made little headway. John the Fearless, realizing that, well, Winter was coming, and the royal forces could starve him out, decided that peace was the way to go. The Peace of Arras, not the Treaty of Arras, that's later, was agreed on the 5th of September. John would give back all the towns he'd taken from the Orleanists and royalists. He had to promise not to make any further alliances with the English. Patrons who have listened to my Henry V episode will know that he just ignored this provision. If he was good, John would be forgiven everything he had done wrong since the last peace. Charles did try to stand up and not forgive John, despite the Dauphin insisting it took the Archbishop of Reims to convince him. Bourbon, following in his father's footsteps, also tried to avoid this. Bourbon, like his late father, Bourbon, didn't want to have anything to do with John, and who can blame them? Despite his disagreement with his cousin, Charles and the Dauphin were still on friendly terms. In January of 1415, Charles VI even gave Louis of Orléans a proper burial, with funeral rites and everything, at Notre Dame. Louis was praised as a great governor. Yeah, I think the pendulum may have swung a bit too far towards exonerating Louis. He really hadn't been an outstanding leader. He was better than his brother, who thought he was made of glass and attacked people randomly, but he wasn't an ideal statesman. Throughout all of this, Charles still needed to raise funds to pay for the ransom of his brother and his men. The biggest problem was that he had to maintain a princely presence at court as well, and that was expensive. It meant paying for fancy clothes, not only for himself, but his whole retinue. Now, it seemed like things were going well in France. There was peace, if 
We ignore that little fact that John the Fearless was negotiating with Henry V, of course. And all save one prince of the blood was supporting the royal family. But well, things were about to change. Despite the current king's struggles, France had managed to push English forces back from the extent they had reached under Edward III to just Calais and a tiny strip of coastal Gascony. There was peace in general. Richard II hadn't been a warrior king by any stretch of the imagination. He had signed a long-term truce upon his marriage to Isabella of France. You know, Charles's first wife. But Richard, due to, among other things, his appropriation of Henry Bolingbroke's inheritance, had been overthrown by said Henry. This Henry, a born soldier and honestly a brilliant military mind, had been stuck dealing with uprisings in England instead of having a chance to fight in France. His son, Henry of Monmouth, now Henry V, though, will have almost no internal uprisings during his reign. Instead, he will focus on one thing, becoming King of France. Oh, and marrying Catherine of Valois. And France had no idea this was going to happen. Henry V, as I've mentioned earlier, had been a bit of a fun prince. But he became, like a switch, a serious king. Henry Mark V for my Rex Factor fans out there. The big mistake is that both sides of the French civil issue had let Henry IV know all the problems going on. And Henry V had, of course, heard these things and was briefed by his father. They even had a disagreement about which side to support. France had shown their whole hand to the English, and Charles was as fully guilty of this as John the Fearless was. France got lucky at first. Henry V agreed to prolong the truce with France until February of 1415. Henry even let the French king know that he really wanted to marry Catherine of Valois, like really, really needed to marry her. He even promised not to make any other marriage negotiations until he could negotiate for Catherine. He might have had his fingers crossed behind his back because he was totally going to negotiate further with John the Fearless. With this setup, I hope you have all guessed where we're going. While peace had been agreed to February of 1415, Henry wanted to be ready at that moment for war. So, after his embassy to France had been told, no, we won't honor this rather old treaty that really only happened because your great-grandfather had our king, who's the current king's grandfather, hostage, Henry asked Parliament in November of 1414 for funding for a war. Charles, the royal family, and all their various supporters spent Christmas at court again. Look, two family Christmases in a row and no poisonings. It's a win. Things are going so well. In February 1415, Henry V sent a second embassy to France to extend the truce until May. Now, I know plenty of you watch The Tudors, that TV show with Jonathan Rhys-Meyers horribly miscast as Henry VIII. Don't worry, I enjoy the tutors on occasion. <laughs> In that show, Henry VIII was being shown as obsessed with Henry V. What's interesting is that the French court in February of 1415 was one that Henry VIII would have loved and one that Henry V was appalled at. When Henry V received reports of jousting and parties that the court hosted, he was convinced that France was falling to decadence. 
To be fair, his ambassador struggled to get audiences with the king or the Dauphin because everyone at court was spending too much time having fun. Henry V, at the end of the day, was a deeply pious king. When his negotiators were finally able to discuss things, the French wouldn't agree to their terms. The French did offer a rather large dowry for Catherine, but no Treaty of Brittany level. Henry had sent over 600 people to basically watch the French party and then not agree to his demands. The French seemingly had no idea that Henry V would be using this as a cause for war. They casually promised to send an embassy to him, but gave no firm dates and no plans were put in place. And with that bit of foreshadowing, I'll pause for the week. I think you all know it's coming, and the next episode will not be nice for Charles. I do hope you'll join me next week, and thank you as always. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at PastPod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash PastPod.